at 7462, Ra. And Ra, it's actually Ra, Ah, it's R-A apostrophe A-H. I can't pronounce this. It's Hebrew, right? To tend a flock, to pasture it, to graze. And and by, it, it's, it could mean to rule over also, and by extension, to associate with as a friend. And, and because it comes with the, the, the meaning of tending a flock, I would think that if you're not from the same flock, you can't be neighbors. It's just not possible. That's the Hebrew word neighbor. It's been translated neighbor in the King James. Now, now we find, you know, because of these geographical allegiances, we'll find a crowd of Americans, in spite of their own Irish or English or German descent, how they're seen, you know, especially in the Olympic Games or, or in international, other international tournaments, They'll be seen cheering on a Negro against an English or a German boxer in a game, simply because the Negro is wearing an American pair of shorts. And, and that's incredible that they they would cheer on a Negro against a white man from another nation just because he's wearing the same shorts or or, or, or red, white, and blue shorts. That, that's just nuts. And and that's the the I don't know that's that's an ancient confusion without race. And and this is just one modern example. More dreadfully, and, and we'll go back to how old this problem is, right? A, a tribe of Benjaminites went to war against the surrounding tribes in Israel to defend crimes perpetrated by men who were of a dubious background. And for that reason, the entire tribe of Benjamin was reduced to merely a few hundred men and, and nearly decimated entirely. That's how old this phenom- phenomenon is. It's as old as, at least as old as the book of Judges in the Bible, and probably a lot older than that. And, and the story I'm referring to is found in Judges chapters 19 and 20. There we see a, a related an account where the entire tribe of Benjamin stood up to defend a town, which was Gibeah, well, which was also King Saul's hometown later on, right? Probably a hundred and so, or so years later on, which would not turn some murderers and rapists over to judgment. But the criminals were called certain sons of Belial, right from the beginning of the, the account. And, and it's evident that they weren't Benjaminites because the word Belial, as can be proven from an examination of the Hebrew language, refers to the state of being mixed. So we see that the children of Benjamin stood up for people within its borders that were of mixed race, the sons of Belial. And they were almost wiped out for it. Now, if you go to 1 Samuel 10.26, you'll see in the same town, long after that battle with the tribe of Benjamin, that, that the children of Israel almost decimated the tri- one of their own tribes, in the same town, Gibeah, we still have the children of Belial, and they were still, long afterwards, causing problems for the Israelites. So the tribe of Benjamin was almost wiped out, defending these children of Belial. And a couple hundred years later, in 1 Samuel 10:26, the children of Belial are still there. They never, and and still giving making problems for the Israelites. And and we don't see that pattern. And and examine the language 
find out what BYO means, and find the root of the problem. So because we don't learn from history, it repeats itself again. Well, that's again. what you get for going slumming. Right, that is what you get for going slumming. <laughs> it always comes back to haunt you. But I want to I, I want to talk about some geographical labels in scripture, and and these will will prove that geographical labels were being used to describe people at the time that were not, and and a lot of people mistake these for genetic labels. This works both ways, and condemn good people. Uh, I guess you you know we do the same thing today. What we have um, people from Tennessee pick on people from Kentucky. Oh, everybody can, from Kentucky is no good. That they're, they're they're all inbred. Their family trees are all screwed up. But we have people from Virginia pick on people from West Virginia and, and write off the entire state. And, and, and it works, oh, he's from West Virginia. He's no good. So, so it works the opposite way, too. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, 12, we see David, the future king of Israel. He's identified as an Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah. And even several generations before David's time, his own ancestors, Elimelech and Naomi, were called Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. Get the um, that that's in Ruth one two that I'm referring to, and the name of the man was Elimelech, and Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. Well, that's been a real serious mistake. Well, well right. It's a, it's a geographical identification and not a tribal one. And, and going into the country of Moab is a geographical identification and not a tribal one. Because the Israelites, Moab was divided in two parts, and it was divided by the river Arnon. And everything below the river Arnon had always belonged to the Moabites, and Moabites lived there. But everything above the river Arnon was taken from the Ammonites. 300 years later, the Moabites went to the Israelites the Ammonites took that land from the Moabites. The Israelites took it from the Ammonites. And 300 years afterwards, the Moabites went to the Israelites and complained that they wanted their land back. And that's in Judges 11.26. Well, the Mexicans today want... Uh some of the southern states back that they yeah. we bought from, too. Don't 300 years later, right. And, and we never really took it off these Mexicans. We really took it. The, the Spaniards, another European country, were, were holding it, were they not? And, and we took it from them. Well, it's called a Louisiana Purchase, and we bought it. Well, well, we did buy, you know, a great amount of land in the Louisiana Purchase, but I don't think that the... Um, Arizona and New Mexico were included in that. They weren't included in that. The Louisiana Territory, I don't think, went that far west. There was a Gadsden purchase, which did purchase a good a good piece of 
New Mexico and Arizona from Mexico? Well, we had to go to war with Mexico, and then we we had a treaty with them, and that established the border, you know, all the way from where it is in Texas to, to California at the pre- present area. And, and uh, so we had a treaty with them, and they've broken that treaty. That's what it amounts to. Well, well, they are breaking the treaty, but their government, quote, unquote, the government isn't doing it. So, so they're getting away with that, that they're breaking the treaty in, in spirit but not officially. And, and because we refuse to enforce the treaty, they're getting away with it. It's our fault. Yeah, I used uh, one whole uh, Watchman teaching letters uh, printing out that treaty that I had gotten off the Internet. Uh, one of the colleges, I forget which college did it, but uh, I printed it just exactly as they had it. Somebody saying the Louisiana Treaty included a part of what would become New Mexico. I didn't realize that the Louisiana Treaty went that far west. But the biggest purchase directly from the Mexicans was the um, the Gadsden Purchase that I that I can recall. But well, what, see, what established the the, the uh, border was the treaty. Right, right, and they're breaking it. There's no doubt. What we see in um. In Ruth 1, 2, and in, in 1 Samuel 17, 12, we see David and we see his, some of his ancestors identified as Ephrathites. And that is a geographical distinction because Ephrath, as we learn from Genesis thirty-five nineteen and Genesis 48, 7, was the older name for Bethlehem. As many of the Canaanite towns were renamed when the Israelites took the land of Canaan, Ephrath was renamed Bethlehem. So here we see a geographical distinction. We see a whole family of people identified by geography and not by their tribal name. And and I'm stressing this because we're going to see it in much greater to a much greater extent very soon. David is elsewhere identified as being of the tribe of Judah. This means of identifying the Israelites and other peoples happens often in Scripture, and we don't notice it. People reading their Bibles today tend to overlook it and accept all these names as genetic names. And that leads us into many false conclusions when interpreting Scripture. And and Ruth the Moabite is the most glaring example, but she's far from the only example. Now, now, first, before getting further into the Bible on this, I, I, I'd like to show and, and see that we've done the same thing in other periods of history. So before moving forward, I'd like to take a diversion and examine the Saxon settlement of Britain as related to us from the pages of the ecclesiastical historian Bede, someone who lived rather close to the time that he wrote about. And the following paragraph I'm going to read is adapted from my paper, Classical Records in German Origins, Part 6, Who are the English? Quote, in his ecclesiastical history, Bede discusses a certain English preacher, Egbert, who made many missionary journeys to the continent. And Bede says that he, quote, by preaching of the gospel to bring the word of God to some of those nations which had not yet heard it, and many countries he knew to be in Germany, of whom the English, 
Angli is the Latin word there, or Saxons, notice that Beat said English or Saxons, which now inhabit Britain, are well known to have had beginning and offspring. Beat is admitting that the Saxon Angli derived from the German people. Whereby, it is that to this day, they are corruptly called Garmans instead of Germans, G-A-R-M-A-N-S, by the Bretons that are their neighbors. Such now, and he's talking about the people on the continent, are the Frisans, the Frisi of Friesland, the Rugans, or Rugi, the Danes, the Huns, the Old Saxons, and the Boruktuars, whereby Bede identifies the Huns as the Germanic tribe. Where it is evident that not only does Bede count the Angles themselves as Saxons, stating English or Saxons, Angli or Sive is the Latin word, or Saxons, but he refers to the Saxons of Germany as Old Saxons. Also, the Bretons knew these new inhabitants of Britain as Germans or Germans, but called them Garmans instead. Bede Saxons must be those same tribes who, along with the Angli, Tacitus had described as Suebi. And while a district in Germany, which was once inhabited by the Angli, evidently remained vacant for some time after they moved to Britain, and I'm referring to an area of Schleswig-Holstein, modern Schleswig-Holstein. As Bede has told us, indeed, not all of the Angli on the continent moved to Britain, as may be seen from the writings of Procopius and others. And there's a lot of place names in Germany to this day which are called after the Angli, because Angli stayed behind in Germany. That Saxon is a general name for a group of German tribes is also evident with Bede, since while he calls them by this name generally, aside from the Angli, he also refers to other individual tribes among those who settled in Britain, namely the Gowissas, or West Saxons. Gowissa was their tribal name. The Griwas, the Huicas, and the Mianwaras. So while Bede gives us specific names of Saxon-German tribes settled in England, and I'll repeat them, not only the Angli, but the Goises, the Griwas, the Huicas, and the Mianwaras. And Bede relates that these settled among Bretons already inhabiting the island. They didn't cleanse the Saxon lands of Bretons. Bede would refute that. It's a myth. The, we see that all of these Saxons quickly forgot their formal, former tribal distinctions. They forgot their, their Germanic names, their tribal names. We don't have them in history, I don't think, if it weren't for Bede. And all rather quickly became known instead as Wessex men or West Saxons, Sussex men or South Saxons, Essex men or East Saxons, or 
Northumbrians, which actually meant the Saxons living north of the river Humber. After a few centuries, not even the Bretons left among them would be distinguished. And while the full story is somewhat, well, it's much more complicated, eventually all of them would become known as both Englishmen and Bretons, as they are today. And they would also distinguish themselves from their own Saxon brethren who remained behind in Germany. Much later on, they would even deny their German brethren in favor of another alien, the British Jew. And, and the point to this is that when the Saxon tribes crossed into Britain and divided up some of the land beside, you know, among themselves, they quickly forgot their tribal names and, and adopted new names that really were geographical in nature. The East Anglia, the, the Essex men, the Sussex men, the Wessex men, the, the Northumbrians, they're all geographical names. And the point is that the same thing happened thousands of years before in the kingdom of Israel. And it happened here in America also. When the Puritans came over here, they became New Englanders or the, habit, the inhabitants of Plymouth or Vermont or New Hampshire or Maine and, and started identifying themselves by their geography. Connecticut Yankees, Rhode Islanders, they weren't English anymore, except in language. Except for the name of the dominant tribe, the Angles, we see the names of the other four Germanic tribes were quickly and easily lost to history. And geographical names came to dominate the vernacular. So it is also with the Bible. When we examine the judges' period into the time of David and Solomon, David, a man of great favor in the eyes of Yahweh our God, wrote in the 139th Psalm, Do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. And we have to imagine that David's not a hypocrite. And we will see this later. Because if David hated the enemies of God with a perfect hatred, how may we perceive that the enemies of God, that, that there could be enemies of God among the mighty chieftains of David's own army? That is right. For using Samuel, 2 Samuel, chapter 23, and 1 Chronicles, chapter 12, where we see a list of these men, the chieftains of David's army, 37 in number. We see names such as Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. That's a geographical distinction. We see Helez the Paltite, Ira, the son of Ekesh the Tekoite, Beniah the Pirithonite. Now, Pirithon was in the mount of the Amalekites as attested to in the Bible, in the land of Ephraim. So can we assume that Benaiah the Pirithonite was an Amalekite, because Pirithon was in the mouth of the Amalekites? Hedai of the brooks of Gash, 
Abialbon, the Arbasite, Asmoseth, the Barhamite, Eliabah, the Shalbanite, Shema, the Hararite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Hararite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezrai, the Carmelite, Carmel was a mountain, and Naharai, the Berethite. Nearly all of these labels are clearly geographical labels. Look them up. And we will. Of places that can be easily detected as dwelling places of the Israelites. Some of the names that I just read are also early Israelite patronyms, which became geographical identifications. But most of them are pure geographical identifications. Clifton, do you have anything to say before I proceed? Well, you know, um, I think I, uh, writing on um, uh, Ruth, you know, I, I got a paragraph that uh, I think is the best that I've written on it. That anybody that's kind of mixed up, uh, mixed up on that, uh, I'll read it. Uh, it must be briefly pointed out here that Ruth was not a Moabite. Before Ruth's time, the Moabites had been conquered and absorbed by the Amorites. Uh, what the serious Bible uh, scholar must understand is that during the Joshua period, the Israelites destroyed the Amorites who had absorbed the Moabites, killing and or displacing both of them. Upon driving out the Amorites, plus the absorbed Moabites out of the land, it is recorded at Joshua 18.7 that half the tribe of Manasseh, along with the tribes of Gad and Reuben, moved into the former land of Moab east of the Jordan. It was later during the Judges period that an Israelite lady uh, from the conquered land of Moab by the name of Ruth journeyed with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Bethlehem. It was Amorites. I'm sorry. I said it was Ammonites before. I, I apologize. Yeah, and see, Amorites, if you go back to uh, uh, Genesis 15 and you look up the ten Canaanite nations, the Amorites are, uh, in fact... Christ even referred to to the Amorites as being being pretty bad, you know. Right. Uh, the Ammonite land was to the south of that. Yeah, Ammonites. That would be from Lot, you know. No, it was the Amorites. Well, well, so were the Moabites, but but the Amorites were Canaanites. There's no doubt. Yeah. So uh, uh, basically, the Moabite, by you know, well, of course, when uh, when the conqueror comes like that, uh, comes in like that, those Amorites when they came in, you know, they kill all the Amorite men, and rape all the Moabite women. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what you ended up with was some half-breed Amorite uh, Moabites. Well, well, right, but they took the land from Moab, and that was my point. The Israelites took it from them, and Moab complained 300 years later. Yeah. And and they really had, had not a, a, a foot to stand on, but that land was always called by Israelites the land of of Moab. And and in 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 the book of Ruth there it 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 says land of Moab. It doesn't say that she was a Moabite. It says that that uh, she lived in the land of Moab. 
I want to stress this because the um, the importance of this will come out a little later when I give some of the other names of David's mighty men. Pelez the Paltite. Paltite equals escape. A descendant of Palti or an inhabitant of Beth Palet. So it's a, a patronymic name that became used as a geographical one. All these definitions are going to be from Strong's. Tekoite. A Tekoite, it is an inhabitant of Tekoa in, in Strong's lexicon. And Anatothite is an inhabitant of Anatoth. I'm in 2 Samuel 2327. A Hush, is an inhabitant of Husha. An Ahoet, an Ahoite, is one of the clan of Ahoa. Zalman the Ahoite, that is a family name, and that Ahoa can be identified in Scripture. He is mentioned. Maharai the Natophathite. Natophath, an inhabitant of Natopha. Okay, so that's a geographical name that village can be identified. There's another Natophathite in the list. The son of Rabbi out of Gibeah, which is a geographical name. It, it's, and it says of the children of Benjamin, so he's a Benjaminite, there's no doubt. Benaiah the Pirithonite. Pirithon is a district in Ephraim. This is probably a man of Ephraim. But it's in the mount of the Amalekites. So he could, yeah, you know, the scoffer can look at that scripture and say, oh, David had an Amalekite under his, as one of his chieftains. And, and it's simply wrongheaded to do that. Because we're assuming, we're making a conjecture that David, who hates the enemies of God with a perfect hatred, would have an Amalekite in his army. And that's a horrible conjecture. Because Yahweh said he would make war with Amalek from generation to generation. And, and this is the way people can take these geographical terms. And if they so want, if they wanted, and, and many people do want, they could twist them and mislead the unknowing or, or those who aren't certain in the knowledge of their faith. Abiyoban the Arbathite, 2 Samuel 23:31, one of David's chieftains, according to Strong's, and, and this is a valid definition. And Ar Arbathi is a native of Beth Araba, as Maveth the Barhumite, that's a village in the Jordan Valley south of Jerusalem. Elihabah the Shalbanite. Shalabim, place of foxes, an inhabitant of Shalbim or Shalabim. Shemah the Hararite. Harari. Hararite equals a mountain dweller. So, 2 Samuel 2333 we have Shema the Hararite and Ahiam, the son of Sherar the Hararite, and they could be mistaken for Horites or just any simple hillbilly. And, 
and that, that you could say, oh, they must have been Canaanites. They were mountain dwellers. The children of Israel pushed them into the mountains. There's a lot of excuses that, that we could use to show or, or to try to twist the scripture, but these are all geographical names, and it's very clear in scripture when you actually read the book of Judges that the children of Israel came to inhabit all of these places. Now, in this list, we see some more damning names, and, and that's why I saved them for last. Well, well, not quite last, but almost last. We see Eliphet, the son of Ahaz Bey, the son of the Maccathite. Now, the Maccathites were basically a non-Israelite kingdom east of the Jordan. And we see that the Maccathites, we, we have one Maccathite among David's captains. Is he a non-Israelite? The kingdom of Macau, Macau was a... Um, a descendant of Nahor, Abraham's brother. And they had a kingdom across the Jordan River. And it's mentioned several times in Scripture. The king of Makkah is mentioned in 1 Chronicles 19.7, specifically. But was this Maccathite a non-Israelite, or was he an Israelite that dwelt in Makkah? Parai the Arbite is also in this list. Now, according to Strong's, and this is correct, the Arbites are Arabs or natives or natives of Arabia. So is Parai the Arbite in David's list of chieftains? 1 Samuel 23:35 Is he an Arab by blood? Is he mixed of mixed race? Could could Yahweh accept David as a man after his own heart if he if he would have chieftains of mixed race in his army? Or is he simply an Israelite whose family dwelt in Arabia? Well, which is only which which isn't far from Palestine. It's only a stone's throw over the Jordan River. And by this time, the Israelites had spread out throughout the entire land, and yes, they began to spill it over its borders. And in fact, I think there was a promise to David that in his time, the Israelites would inhabit from the Nile to the Euphrates. Is that not – is that – am I wrong about that, Clifton? Um, well, I'm wasn't not that, sure. Uh, I believe that was fulfilled. It was a promise to Abraham that was fulfilled in David's time. It sounds reasonable, but I, I can't verify that. <laughs> yes, I believe it, it's a, a promise to Abraham, and it was fulfilled in David's time. <clears throat> but an Arbite, Parai the Arbite, that's a native of Arabia. And I cannot accept the fact that he's an Arab. If all of those other terms, are, if all of these other men are, are identified by geographical distinctions and not tribal distinctions, then I have to believe that Parai... David, being a hater of God's enemies, is probably just an inhabitant of Arabia and not 
and Arab. The next one I'd like to mention is Ilgal, Egal, the son of Nathan of Zobah. Zobah is a kingdom in Syria. Zelech the Ammonite comes next. Zelech the Ammonite is mentioned as being among David's chieftains in 1 Samuel 23:37. Right with Naharai the Berothite. A Berothite is an inhabitant of Beeroth. Zelech the Ammonite and Naharai the Berothite. Is Zelech an Ammonite by race? Or is he an Israelite that dwells in the land of Ammon, a good portion of which the children of Israel took for themselves? In fact, Reuben came to inhabit the ancient land of Ammon. And so did Manasseh. Both those tribes came to inhabit parts of the ancient land of Ammon. So, so do we believe that David is hiring Ammonites, or are these people simply called, is Zelech simply called an Ammonite because he inhabits the land of Ammon? And all these other people in David's list are clearly identified on geographical terms, because they're all Israelites. That's why they're identified on geographical terms. The texts never tell us that any of these men are non-Israelites. But there are many interpreters who make such conjectures. If David hates the enemies of Yahweh, how could he have embraced the enemies of Yahweh? Was David a hypocrite? Or are the commentators today that say, oh, look, Ruth was a Moabite. Oh, look, Zelech is an Ammonite. Oh, look, Solomon had an Ammonite wife. So Rehoboam was an Ammonite. Or are these terms simply often used geographically as they are here in 2 Samuel 23? Either the terms are used geographically or we have to accept that David was a hypocrite. And that is a very strong accusation since Yahweh loved David probably... <laughs> more than anybody else in Israel, except maybe his own, his own person and being and, and son, Yahshua Christ. So that's a very serious accusation. We also see a Jasho beam labeled as a Hackmanite in this list. In fact, he's first in the list. And, and that Hackmanite is sometimes written Takmanite. And it means sagacious or skillful. And I believe that in that same manner, we see that the Appalachian Hittite of Uriah, who appears last in the list, can also mean terrible one. It doesn't necessarily identify a Hittite by race. If we check Strong's number 2850, we'll see that the word... Hittite can mean terrible one. The original meaning of the root word, 
at Strong's 2845. And that would be a, a very fitting name for a man who was described as being a great warrior, Uriah the Terrible. That was his name. He was not a Hittite. Deuteronomy 23.3 states that an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of Yahweh forever. So we see that tenth generation is more or less a metaphor, which means indefinitely. Therefore, we must either accept the names of David's mighty chieftains in geographical, as geographical and descriptive names, or we insinuate that David is a liar. He didn't really hate God's enemies with a perfect hatred. And furthermore, there is the story of David's own grandmother, Ruth. And Ruth was not a Moabite. There is a lot of internal evidence in the book of Ruth that the woman was actually an Israelite, one of many who dwelt in the land of Moab, as that portion of the ancient Moabite land which Israel took from the Amorites was still called hundreds of years after the Israelites came to inhabit it, the land of Moab. Judges 11.26 In Ruth 1.15 and 16, the word gods and God could just as well have been translated judge and judges, as the word L means, and this was the judges, period. Ruth told Naomi that she would give up her judge, her district, her 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 um legal rights in her land, and she would give them up for the legal rights and the judges that Naomi had in her land. That's all Ruth is saying. And they're just as valid translations of the Hebrew words. Boaz, if we pay attention to the book of Ruth, is presented as a very pious man and not a lawbreaker. The most glaring example of the most glaring proof to me of Ruth being an Israelite is in is in Ruth chapter four, and the unnamed man, who is even closer in kinship to Naomi than Boaz was, and this man is publicly disgraced in Ruth chapter four because he was not in a position to redeem Naomi. And he could have avoided the disgrace that he had to undergo, the, the, the um, handing over of his shoe and, and getting his face spat in in front of the city elders, which is a we, we find in um, that account in Genesis, I think, Clifton, if I'm not right. It, it, it's either in Deuteronomy or Genesis. I think it's in Genesis. And, and that disgrace may have been avoided simply by citing the law at Deuteronomy 23.3, where a Moabite should not enter the congregation of Yahweh. Instead, the man suffered the disgrace, and Ruth was redeemed by Boaz through the law of kinsman redemption, which is a law 
that only binds Israelites. That's in Deuteronomy 25, 7-10. I'm going to read it in a minute. The law of kinsman redemption only binds Israelites. It's not at all applicable to non-Israelites. This act was a legal act performed before the elders of the city, and it cannot be inferred that a racial alien could have been accepted in such manner without mention. To infer that is basically to deny the entire meaning of the Bible in the context of the Bible. Deuteronomy 25.7, And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders. This is what we see happening in Ruth chapter 4. And say, my, brother, my husband's brother refuses to take up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and says, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come into him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from up his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that this man, unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that has his shoe loosed. That's a reproach. That's a curse to me. It's a disgrace that that man could not redeem Ruth, redeem Ruth from Naomi. It's a disgrace he could have easily avoided by citing the law. He didn't. He underwent the disgrace. Ruth was absolutely an Israelite. There's no way that um, Ruth could have come under the jurisdiction of a – if she was Moabite, there's no way she could have come under the jurisdiction of an Israelite judge. Well, right, absolutely. The entire internal evidence of of Ruth proves that she was an Israelite. People – don't know their Bibles, and, and they fall for the deception. It's a geographical distinction that's made throughout the period. We see geographical distinctions made, people identified by geography. Well, without having a surname, I, I really don't know of any place uh, in the New or Old Testament uh, where um, – where you can identify a person uh, other than their first name, and, and being uh, a lot of people have this first name, you have to have some kind of a identification. To uh, it's like Joseph of Arimathea. You know, there must have been other Josephs uh, living at that time, but Joseph, uh, the Joseph of Arimathea would make would uh, separate him from the others. Well, absolutely. And and that's that is how people until we took surnames in the Middle Ages, that is how people were identified. In fact we didn't take surnames until uh the time of William the Conqueror. Right. 
And um, all throughout Saxon history, as well as Israelite history, we see names like Mary Magdalene. That means Mary of Magdal. That's what it means. If you examine the Greek, Magdalene means a woman of Magdal. Mary of Magdal. We we see Joseph of Arimathea. We see um, William of Norwich. We see um, over and over again throughout our history. We see people identified by a name and the town that they came from. William William the Conqueror had ulterior motives uh, for forcing the people to take uh, surnames because he had brought the Jews in with their coins and stuff, and he was going to change the money system. And uh, he got around, and uh, he was going to start taxing everybody. So he sent taxers, uh, tax assessors out throughout the land, and uh, they made records of every chicken, of every every uh, farm animal, whatever it was, you know, their furniture or whatever they had. And the people uh, uh, was so um, distraught about it. They, uh, they thought it, uh, they thought it was the end of the world. And, and and the book they was registering in was what they called the Doomsday Book. And that's the reason they they called it the Doomsday Day Book because they uh, I think in Latin that's Domus Day, isn't it? Yes. And. and uh, of course, if he's going to tax them like that, he's got to have better records. And he probably used those same Jews that brought in the coin to, to be the tax assessors to go out and, and charge the taxes. Right, and, and that's connected to the word for domicile. Basically, wherever you see the government registering all the property of a people, scratch the surface, you'll find the Jews. There's no doubt in, in my mind. And and before William the Conqueror, the kings of England were paid their taxes in to, in kind. And and it's very inconvenient to receive three hundred chickens and and six hundred head of cattle and twelve thousand eggs and a bunch of vegetables all at once, right? Yeah, well, that's why he wanted the Jews and their coins. Well, well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's the coins made the by so much. That we're using coins. now. Only they, that, they, 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 we don't even have the coins anymore. And and that was used as another way to oppress the people. And and that's how this mess that we're in now all all started out basically. But that's an odd way for surnames to start coming in. Now, you take somebody who wants to trace their their lineage and they want to go back as far as they can. Now it's uh, now there's a few people that can trace their um, family uh, tree back uh, quite a ways, but you reach a certain point, and uh, and these people are called, uh, you know, uh, by you know, the, in England there's forty five thousand surnames. <laughs> now that's people, uh, that's families, that's uh, that's not individuals. Well, you think individuals, it'd be awful hard to, but. A few people can trace back to one of the kings, and if you get, if you can trace back to one of the king lines, then there is records which you can go on back farther. 
But there, uh, if you want to trace your lineage to try to prove it, you're an Israelite, uh, it'd be very difficult if you couldn't uh, connect up with some king along the line. I don't know whether you ever wanted to check your lineage or not. <laughs> well, it doesn't go back. To, I, I don't know if it can go back further than 17. Yeah. Right now, my family lineage is back to about 1708. I don't think we can get it for, back further than that. Yeah, uh my mother was uh, in, into checking lineage and stuff like that, and uh, uh, I do know that uh, I'm uh, uh, Scotch, Irish, and German. Really, German's the biggest part of me. I mean, I'm about uh, uh, maybe half to two thirds German. And but well, just to continue to to finish with this. And in like manner, just like we have Ruth the Moabitess and we have all these other people identified geographically, we have Nama the Ammonitess, the mother of Rehoboam, a wife of Solomon. And, and I noted Solomon, the text says that she took many, that, that Solomon took many strange wives. But I would think that Nama the Ammonitess must have been an Israelite from the land of Ammon because the Israelite did come to destroy and inhabit Ammon in the days of David. See 2 Samuel chapter 12 for an example. And seeing that Ammonitis is used in David's list of mighty men of, of Zelik, and they are all geographical terms, if one insists that this is a racial term only, then one is also by necessity accusing Yahweh himself of hypocrisy, since there is no getting around Deuteronomy 23.3, even for Yahweh himself, that an Ammonite would never come into the congregation. And since Christ descended from Rehoboam, that would only compound the problem even further. But all of these conflicts in Scripture disappear once it is realized that at this time, these terms were often used in a geographical sense and not in a genealogical sense. As it is fully evident here that they were often used in that manner. Well, it just proves that we have to divide the word properly. Well, we, well right. We're, we're told that that's what we should do. And uh, we, we should find out uh, the circumstances, you know, uh, I, I think most of the people, I, I think there's very few people realize uh, these uh, identifications by uh, various means, you know, uh, 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 like geographic areas and uh, uh, some guy living on a, a hilltop, so his name is Hill, you know, and, and things like that, uh, uh, or, or his occupation or uh uh, he's a butcher or something else, you know, and and uh Well well when interpreting the scriptures, the Christian must ask himself whether he believes that Yahweh God is supreme or is our modern thinking is supreme. And whether we're even Christians or if we're really humanists. Because Yahweh our God assures us in his word that he does not change forever. Malachi 3.6 is one example of that. 
and that he is the same throughout the ages, Psalm 102, 26 to 27, and that his word never fails. And Christ assures us that the scripture cannot be broken, John 10, 35. And once we realize that it's God who is supreme, we must ourselves be very wary of, of taking any of his words as we take our own, too lightly. Yahweh said that an Ammonite and a Moabite would never enter the congregation forever, and he meant just that. And we see in this whole list of David's mighty men, 2 Samuel chapter 23, all of these people used with geographical distinctions attached to their names. Just like we did throughout Europe, European history, where we see Geoffrey of Monmouth, William of Norwich, William of Normandy, where, where we see people identified the same way throughout our history. It was no different in the ancient Israelite kingdom. The scripture, whenever there's an illegitimate union, an illegitimate offspring, the scripture is quick to tell us. And, and it would also be very hypocritical of us to accuse the scripture writers or, or God himself of hypocrisy in only pointing out half of those unions or a portion of those unions and, and accepting the others. That, that's just crazy. That, that's a very un unstable and erratic and hypocritical method by which to interpret scripture. Well, it's it's a it's a real important uh, subject, uh, and, and you know the universalists uh, they'll jump at any case where they can try to mix the races some way. You know, try to find something in the Bible to support their idea of it's all right to race mix. Right, that they do that. That's exactly what they do. That they'll lunge for any thing that they could find to show that their idea of race mixing is okay. And and it turns the word of God into vanity. And Christians should never, ever fall for it. Okay, do we have anything else? Is there anything else you want to talk about, Clifton? What, what are you um, working on lately? Not, not particular. Um... Let's run down what, what you're writing about lately. Well, um, well, we have some time left here. Tonight. I'm in my Watchman teaching letters. I, I'm uh, writing about the uh, greatest love story ever told, you know. And, and that I'll tell you, when I started that, I didn't know, I didn't realize getting getting in that big a subject. And and um, uh, the reason we keep the laws in the Bible is not out of uh, some uh, real angry, ju uh, you know, angry uh, God that has put all this, uh, these laws to us. Uh, these laws that we're supposed to keep are an agreement we made with the Almighty as a, as a prenuptial agreement. We agreed to all this stuff bef before he married us. And, and uh, that puts a whole different... Uh, uh, if you look on it that way, you know, uh, you uh, 
you love to keep the law uh, to honor your husband. Well, well, right. That's exactly true. A, a lot of people might think you're going into too much detail on, on the marriage relationship between Yahweh and the nation or, or children of Israel. And, and it really needs to be covered in that detail because it's a story that so few people understand properly. And, and I started out um, kind of following, I can't think of the guy's name, uh, he's down in Missouri there. Um, <laughs> I can't think of his name now at all. But uh, I, was, I was following his thing, but so many so many other things has entered into it that uh, I, I didn't realize before I started. So it's got to be quite a big topic, and I'll probably be on it for at least another year. And uh, and and, and I've, I've been writing on the beast of the field, you know, identifying the beast of the field, and uh, uh, I got on onto that. Uh, because that guy over in uh, Ireland, uh, Alan Campbell, yes, yeah, he had presented a, a thing, and and that thing circulated around here quite a bit, and I think on the old, uh, it was on the old uh, uh, VHS formats on on the v, you know the ta- uh, 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 TV uh, uh, videos, right. it's, it's, you know. Who is the beast of the field? Pastor Alan Campbell. Yeah, it's been around and around and around. Uh, I have a copy of it on a new Ensign site, and I also have your um, critique of of that linked to it. Uh huh. And, and I think I have to put the latest ones up, but um, that they'll be there eventually. Well, I've uh, uh, I've got four of them out so far, and I think I, it may end up having uh, two or three more. And uh, and then I'm uh, uh, working on uh, Ron Wyatt, uh, trying to expose him because uh, yeah, he's got some of the most fantastic t- tales that I've ever heard of anybody. And uh, there's just things that uh, he he's uh, accusing the Almighty of breaking his own uh, natural laws, claiming that uh, Christ. Uh, didn't have the normal chromosomes uh, uh, that uh, we that we Israelites have. Well, well, right. Christ had to be perfect in every way. He had to be one of us. Well, well you take you take all the Levites that served behind the uh, that went in behind the veil in the holy place. They didn't dare have a wart. They didn't have. Uh, uh, they they couldn't have a damaged testicles uh, and. Uh, they couldn't have a bad eye. Uh, they had to be perfect specimens. And uh, now the other Levites that had these uh, 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 genetic disorders, uh, they could serve, uh, you know, but they couldn't serve in the in the Holy of Holies. And um, uh, so the, the Almighty is not about to break his own uh, own laws uh, uh, on genetics. So that's going to be a, a turn out to be quite a lengthy thing too. And 
Well, well, right. I, I mean, I, I can understand a lot of people want to believe the Ron Wyatt story, that they really do. But Ron Wyatt has many inaccuracies and many in, impossibilities in his story. And, and that's, that, that's absolutely evident. It, it's not possible that Ron Wyatt was telling the truth. Sorry, Skip, I cannot agree with you on that. that that's just the way it is. Now, um uh, I, I think Ron Wyatt was one of those guys who could sell a, uh, an Eskimo refrigerator. Uh. Susie, most of the pharaohs of the 18th and the late 18th and early and throughout the 19th dynasties were um, mixed with Hittite blood. You know, but, I got back on that subject uh, uh, on one of the uh, on one of the uh, things that I'm writing on Wyatt, you know, and and you know I uh, you know remember when I was writing on Egypt, you know, and, and how uh, it had up would be the one that uh, rescued uh, Moses from the water and all that, you know, and and you know there's uh, I had a commentary. Of course, I bought this con commentary after I wrote all that stuff, and it was sitting on the shelf, you know. And I didn't realize I even had the material sitting in my house. And, I, and, and you know, they put that thing together almost exactly the way I did on, on that Egyptian history, that, that, that 18th dynasty through there. Um, and they had, they had the, um, the bad pharaoh, you know, that started the, um, that, that didn't know Joseph. They, they had, had him as uh, Tutmosis III. And then they had uh, the Tutmosis, which I, they were probably right, had Tutmosis the fourth, um, uh, the the Pharaoh of the Exodus, and and you know with with uh, Moses uh, going um, after after he killed the Egyptian, you know, and he had to leave the country, and he didn't come back for forty years, you know. It, well, it it worked. I, I think they're right on it. And, and it's coming kind of from an unlike, you know, it's coming out of a, uh, isn't there a Baptist seminary down in uh, 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 Dallas, Texas? Uh, and, and, and the guys that wrote these, uh, uh, one guy's name is Wolverd, and I forget the other guy's name. And, the, the, and, white, the white pharaohs of the 18th dynasty may have been Shemites. And, and Ramses may have descended from Hamites or Shemites. I'm not 100% certain. But he, he they they also mixed with Hittites. Well, you're talking about Ramses. He he came later, you know. Yeah, yes, he was a 19th dynasty pharaoh. Yeah. And, and, and let me say that the proof for, for the um, exodus occurring in the 18th dynasty is also in Josephus, who tells us expressly that Tuthmos was the pharaoh of the exodus, he just doesn't tell us which Tutmos. However, it's completely evident that it had to be Tutmos three or Tutmos four. I, I believe you have it narrowed down to Tutmos four. Yeah, um, yeah, right. And, and I believe that it, uh, with the timeline and ever, it almost has to be Tutmos uh, Tutmos four. Well, well, right. When we look at Tutmos four as the pharaoh for the Exodus, and and we imagine. The, the 40 years in the desert, then the Telamana letters are letters from the kings of the cities of Canaan appealing to Akhenaten, the pharaoh 
who was a 19th dynasty pharaoh, and Akhenaten was being begged by the Canaanite kings to help defend the cities of Canaan against the invading Habigru. Yeah. That now the, the invading Habiru are the Hebrews, the Israelites, who are destroying the cities of Canaan in the middle of the of the 14th century B.C. So that would well, be getting into around the time of the 19th dynasty, wouldn't it? Well, that is in the 19th dynasty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and Ramses is a later king, king of Egypt, pharaoh of Egypt, and so is Tutankhamun. In fact, Tutankhamun. But I couldn't. I the, couldn't um, believe that, the that they had come to the same conclusion that I had, and I had. I I had to work from scratch. I had to work for everything that I could. Do. The one thing that they didn't understand about it was the bad blood that got it. That's. But they came to the same same conclusions that I did, uh, you know, from a different angle. And, and so I I um, I copied a page out of their book. Uh, uh, showing uh, showing how they put it together, and it's pretty much the way that I put it together there, uh, back around uh, 2002 or three in there someplace. And, and uh, you know, I didn't know anything when I started writing about Egypt. I didn't know anything about Egypt. I'd go to the used bookstores, you know, and I, and and I'd find uh, Egyptian history in other places. But I, I just looked all over the place and. And then there was a woman at the time, uh, she knew what I was writing on, and she'd copy uh, pages out of her library, you know, books out of her library and send it to me. And, and uh, Well, right, you sort of pressed yourself into writing about Egypt. I don't think you, you started out writing about jo- about um, Judah. Yeah, well, I did about uh, 25 lessons on Judah. Yeah, I, I reached a point and, and uh, I switched subjects uh, like I often do, really. Practically no reason at all, but uh, that's what happened. Now, the original Hamites were white. The original Egyptians were white. They had started to mix with Nubians before the 8th century B.C. But in, I think in the 7th century B.C., they were overrun by Nubians, and Nubian kings ruled Egypt. Negro sat in the throne of the pharaohs for 50 years. And now, you had now, just exactly what you're having in the United States today. Yes. Now, the um, the Egyptians managed to eject the Nubians from the rule of Egypt, but they never got rid of the blood. And the later Egypt of the Ptolemaic period, the Egypt of the Cleopatras, that was not an Egyptian Egypt by any means. That was a Greek Egypt. The Greeks, the Ptolemies, and the Greeks moved in there in large numbers and basically adopted Egyptian culture and took Egypt over and marginalized the native Egyptians. Yeah, and then after uh, after the time of Christ and... Uh... Uh, on up to the next four, five, six hundred years, the Turks and uh, Mamelukes and uh, Egypt just become a, a, a 
whatever you want to call it. Uh, uh, you can't get much more mixed than what they are. Well, well no, today. And, um, yeah, I don't know if they're more mixed than, than the Jews are, but... They got a lot of Arab blood. Got to be real close. They got a lot Actually, of Arab blood in in the in the Egyptians today. Well, well, yes, they do. The Egyptians, e Egypt, the official name for Egypt is the Arab Republic of Egypt. That's the official name of Egypt today. And that's what that's what bothers me on Wyatt. Uh, he's supposed to have found a, a, a Nate spoke wheel. Uh, in, in the Red Sea, and he goes and asks, asks one of these Egyptian mamelukes, and supposedly the uh, you know you have one of these Egyptians Arabs that they're, they're no relation at all to the ancient Egyptians, and he supposedly tells uh, him that uh, that uh, the Pharaoh the oppression uh, uh, they had eight spoke wheels in. Well, I, I checked on that. And uh, they didn't have eight-spoke wheels on chariots until the Assyrians uh, started uh, invaded Israel in, in uh, the 700 BCs. So, uh, if anybody can find an eight-spoke wheel before that and prove it, you know, uh, they can uh, let me know. Well, well, like I said, there's a lot of problems with Ron Wyatt's interpretations. And, and with his claims concerning um, his findings, that there are many problems, many archaeological impossibilities, genetic impossibilities, archaeological uh, archaeological misrepresentations. Well, you, you sure as hell don't go asking a mameluke living in Egypt today about Egyptian history. And, and I've watched these archaeological shows on television, and I caught them one night. I may even have the uh, the old uh, videotape around someplace. And uh, they was uh, taking uh, um, uh, samples of the different Egyptian. It was, it was the 18th dynasty that they was taking of, and they was uh, taking samples of the bone, and and they were grinding it up. Uh, and uh, taken test, and uh, and this, this uh, Mameluke over there, you know, this is the head of the uh, the Egyptian archaeology thing over there uh, today. Uh, he said that uh, they were the same same uh, people with same DNA as what the Egyptian back in the head in the 18th dynasty, and I knew that that was a damn lie when I heard it. But but they made the mistake when they showed how the they had this thing that looked like a blender, only it was a lot more higher powered, and it was transparent, so you could see the cutters, you know. And, and they they took and ground up some of uh, this mummy, uh, this 18th dynasty mummy, and they they ground it up in there, and they showed doing that. Well, they didn't clean out the thing, didn't clean out the little container before, from the last time they had tested it. So how do they know what they got? Well, well, you know that that um, yeah, you know, to find blood exposed, it is in in archaeology, for for any amount of time, is absolutely impossible, because blood, to 
bacteria is food. And there's no way that protein is going to lay there for any length of time and not be eaten. It, it's The whole thing is ridiculous. The whole Ron Wyatt scenario is ridiculous. It can be disproved a hundred ways. People want to believe it because it sounds good, and, and they, they want it's their emotions that are driving their decisions. It's not ration. It, it, it's not their, their intellect. It's not their spirit. It's not the spirit of God. It, it's not their um, common sense. It, it's just an emotional decision. Well, I'm not going to believe any damn Mameluke from uh, Egypt that can't even uh, uh, do, do a proper DNA test. Then, then, right. then he comes up with a fantastic story that uh, when they took this blood test over there to the Israelis and and uh, and, they, and then then the Israelis are supposed to say, well, whose blood is this? And then and then he says, your your Redeemer's blood. Uh, uh, and they were supposed to have uh, uh, cried about it. And different. I I don't uh, that. That's the last thing that a Jew would do. You know, these Canaanite Jews would be remorseful over Christ's death. That's the last reaction would come out of them. Well, well right. They, they Exactly. <laughs> if they do anything, they'd smile. If they do anything, they'd do the same thing to Wyatt. <laughs> yeah. If, if they do anything, they'd hang Wyatt. They'd crucify him. For, for telling them something like that, they they run them out of there. What's this one? Uh, this one Jew, you know, he says, uh, "Well, if 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 Christ lived during uh, our time, we'd have, we'd have put him in a, a meat grinder and ground him up. They never found him again, you know." Well, right. The Jews still hate him to this day. There's a horror comedian I have a, a video of her somewhere on my my website, boasting that she'd like to do it again. Yeah. Ron Wyatt's a Seventh-day Adventist. His interpretations of archaeology do not come from the science of archaeology. They come from the religion of Seventh-day Adventism. Well, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists don't even agree with these findings. His, um, his depictions of cherubs are wrong. His descriptions of the ark are often wrong. It, his um, finding of a chariot wheel in the Gulf of Aqaba is the absolutely ridiculous to imagine that the Gulf of Aqaba was the crossing point of the Israelites in the first place. In the second place, the Gulf of Aqaba was a very common port. Chariots were often conveyed on ferries across the water. When, when armies crossed the Red Sea, they didn't build new chariots at the other side. What they did was they brought their chariots with them. Quite often, those, those ships did not make the other side. They were sunk in storms. They were sunk in wars. There's probably a zillion chariot wheels on the bottom of the Red Sea. Well, if you found a chariot wheel, it might have been uh, an Assyrian uh, of the 700 uh, B.C. period. Well, well, it could have been an Israelite chariot wheel, but it could have been a Roman chariot wheel from, from 400 years of Roman occupation in the area. It could have been a Greek chariot wheel from 500 years or 600 years of a Greek presence and occupation in the area. It, it, you know, the chariot wheel doesn't have to be an Egyptian chariot wheel, and history tells us that it wasn't. And, and common sense 
along with Scripture, prove that the Gulf of Aqaba was definitely not the crossing place of the Israelites under Exodus out of Egypt? Uh, yeah, not only that, but uh, uh, the mountains on the uh, east side of the Gulf of Aqaba, uh, it, it's, it's one of those ranges that comes right down to the edge of the water. In other words, if you cross there, when you got the other side, the first thing you have to do is climb the mountain. You have to have mountain climbing equipment to get up there, and you don't. You don't. Uh, Egyptians would have been crazy if they'd have taken taken their chariots up in that particular area in the first place. But I'll go in that. I'm going in that in detail on. Uh, uh, I've got a pretty good uh, book that E. Raymond Cap put out, and it makes a lot of sense. And uh, and I'm using that. And um, uh, at least uh, you know uh, E. Raymond Cap might have turned against the sea line, but at least the man was an archaeologist. And Why did he turn against two sea line? What poison do you really I understand have? that he was at one time two sea line, and he got the uh, he got the following Sheldon Emery wherever Sheldon Emery was, he was there too. They'd have meetings. In fact, I went to a meeting up in Detroit, uh, where and and they were both there, you know, and they they were just running with each other, and, and Sheldon Emery. Uh, uh, took a notion to go against two seed line and 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 it could have been Sheldon Emery's uh uh influence on him, I don't know. Now, Emery was never two seed line? Yeah, his father was uh, his father as I understand it anyway, was real strong two seed line and for a long time, you know, uh you've got that uh uh, book about Abraham's, uh, uh, you know, the covenant of Abraham. What is it called now? Uh, Which one? E. Raymond Katz, Abrahamic covenant. Yeah, mm-hmm. Abrahamic covenant, and he he mentions in there about the the uh, uh, he more he doesn't he doesn't call it satanic, uh, but he he kind of refers to it as that. Well, well, that that was E. Raymond Cap. That wasn't Sheldon Emery's, though. Yeah, that was E. Raymond Cap. But you was asking how? Why did uh, why did uh, uh, e. e. Raymond Cap uh, go against Two Sea Line? That wasn't that the question. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and yeah, well, that's what I was trying to answer. It could have been Sheldon Emery's influence. Right. Because I, I'll tell you what I think. You know, I, I think that uh, Stephen E. Jones got into um, uh, Sheldon Emery's ministry, and and there's another guy that could sell a, a, a Eskimo a refrigerator, and and, uh, and Stephen E. Jones wrote a book against Two Sea Line. He called it the Babylonian Connection, and he tried to prove that if you believed in Two Sea Line, you believed in a Babylonian religion. Well, well, not for nothing, but if I was on fire, I wouldn't let Stephen Jones sell me a bucket of water. But, but it, it may it, uh, Stephen Jones might be the guy that's, uh, and Stephen Jones pushes uh, universalism big time, you know. 
Well, well, he asked her to cover for his Negro daughter. Yeah, he's got. He's got. I think maybe she's Filipino or something like that. I, uh, well, she might be from the Philippines. I've seen her uh, picture. She's a Negro. She's definitely a, a, a daughter of color. Yeah, a real dark color. Yeah. And, and and I think he said he sent me an email under somebody else's name and said that she was just under the uh, tanning lights too long. Under the tanning lights too long. What happened to those features? <laughs> Did it melt her face? Well, that's that's what that's what was sent to me. Yeah, they, no tanning lights did that. That the only thing that did that were were alien genes. Well, I, I was I was I stationed over in the Philippines and I saw those gooks, and and, and she looked to me like she's part gook. Well, well, they well, well right, they, but they and have the, a lot of bomb. His his uh, parents were missionaries to the Philippines. But the people in the Philippines and Malaysia have a, a large injection of Arab and Negro and Dravidian blood. From, from They were on the Arab trade routes. I mean, the Muslims, uh, there's a lot of Muslims in Malaysia and a lot of Muslims in the Philippines because of the Arab influence there throughout the Middle Ages. Well, the you know, Arabs, uh, you you know, know we, we weren't trading there, but the Arabs were for all those centuries. Well, you know how the Mexicans are mixed with the Jews, so so are the so are the Filipinos. They, uh, there's a there's a bunch of Jews mixed up with the Filipinos over well, there. Well, wherever you have Arab traders in the Middle Ages, you're going to have the Jews right there with them. Well, I guess so. Uh, all these people are um, the seed of the serpent a lot more than we might generally perceive. Well, his uh, uh, his daughter might be part of the seed of the serpent there, but but uh, he come out big time against and and it could be that uh, Sheldon Emery, not Sheldon Emery, but uh, E. Raymond Cap, he he might have just stopped talking about it because it became a uh, um, a matter of contention between a lot of people and. And, uh, but did he ever refute it or, or speak against it? I, you know, I've never, I've never, I never saw that. But see, E. Raymond Cap joined that church. You know, he he was in Sheldon Emery's church, and then he joined at uh, uh, Dave Barley's church up there in Idaho. Yeah, and that's really that's really a left curve, right off a cliff, because that's where David Barley's headed. The, the guy that invites Arabs and uh, to his meetings. Well, well, yeah, Dave Barley's a universalist. He may as well wear, wear a mitre and call himself the Pope. He, he, yeah, he's a, he's an absolute universalist. Well, maybe I've been around this movement too long. I don't know. Now, I don't think there's such a thing as too long, Clifton. I want to see you around another ten years. I, I hate to do that to you, but. <laughs> Well, I, I'm going to try to stick You know, I'm going to write as long as I can, and, and uh, but I'm going to be careful about what I write. I'm going to docu- document. You know, I've been documenting ever, ever since, you know, that I started, and I'm glad I started in that way uh, because there's a lot of things that you can get into and, and uh, go off the deep end on. Well, well right, there are. 
and, and we have to keep writing, right? We have to keep studying and writing, is what I should say. You're right. And, and if if I had a thousand years, I couldn't. I I wouldn't be able to cover everything. I I know I couldn't do it. It's it's too big a subject. Well, well, of course it is. I mean, I I got a whole list of papers I want to write that that I don't have time for. That, that hopefully I'll get time here and there, and and they'll get written. You, you could never run out of material, biblical material to um, and yeah. historical material. Well, as long as I can keep using the keyboard. If I okay. could just keep hitting the right keys. <laughs> well, well, thanks for being here tonight with me, Clifton. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm sure everybody appreciated it. And, and um, thank you for all of your hard work. Yeah, okay. Praise Yahweh. Good night. This is William Fink for... Eli James and Yahweh's Covenant people. Good night. Everybody.